seated. <clears throat> if you have a copy of God's word with you, I invite you to open up to the epistle to Titus, where we will continue our study through this uh, short little book, but a book uh, full of uh, wonderful news about Christ and how he builds his church. Uh, this evening, we will be looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Titus 1, 5 through 9. Give heed, this is God's word. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word which you have given to us, for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And we ask now that as we come to this word, that you would indeed teach us, that you would equip us for every good work, that you would show us those areas of our lives of, of which we need to repent and that you would use this to point us to Christ and conform us more to his image. We pray, Lord, that you would glorify yourself in our study of this text in Titus. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Well, many of you, though perhaps not all of you, because I see some, some very young faces in the congregation this evening, but many of you have at some point or another in your life applied for a job. Now, what happened when you applied for that job? Did you just show up and tell the, the company or the establishment or whatever it was, hi, I'm here, I'm your new employee, uh, what am I supposed to do now? No, you didn't just walk in and say, well, this is my job now, I'm going to start working here. Uh, there was a process that you went through first, wasn't there? Uh, perhaps the employer asked you to fill out an application. So you had to write down all sorts of information about who you were and what kind of experience you had something along those lines. Perhaps uh, if it was a more uh, professional job or the like, you had to turn in a resume, right? A whole little uh, document that told them who you are and here's all of my work experience and here's my education experience and here's my uh, extracurricular activities that I've done that maybe in some way, shape or form qualify me for this job. And why did you do that? Why did you have to fill out an application? Why did you have to turn in a resume? Well, it's because particular jobs require particular activities, which means that you have to meet certain qualifications, right? If you want to apply for a job as a doctor, 
you probably need a certain set of qualifications, don't you? Uh, going to medical school, for starters. Or the same thing if you wanted to be a lawyer or any other things. When, uh, when the search committee uh, contacted me and, and said, well, we'd like to continue through with, with this process, they asked me to send in a filled out questionnaire and a resume and a, a ministerial data form, which were all various documents that said, this is who Tim Cook is, uh, these are his various qualifications, uh, and it was my hope when I sent those in that all of those things would say, this is why you should call him as a pastor. But we, we see the, the necessity in regular life for meeting qualifications, don't we? We see the necessity of, of doctors having uh, the right qualifications to practice medicine or lawyers having the right qualifications to practice law. There is a very similar uh, thing which must, must happen uh, in the church with church officers. That is, church officers must also meet qualifications. And that is what uh, Paul speaks to Titus about in this text this evening and, and what the Holy Spirit speaks to us about by extension. That God has given the church an office, an office of elders, and it's to be comprised of qualified men for the building up of the church. So God's given the church an office to be comprised of qualified men or Godly men, because that is what the qualification is, is godliness. And this is for the building up of the church. You remember last week when we went over uh, Paul's greeting to Titus, that we saw how uh, this greeting really kind of set the tone for the book as a whole. Titus is ministering to the people uh, of Crete, as we will see uh, in verse 5 here. Uh, and he's ministering to them uh, to build them up in their faith and in their knowledge of the truth with accords with godliness. He's to do this for the good of God's people in Crete, the building up of the church and by extension. Again, this is for the good of God's people throughout all places, throughout all times. This office of elder, which has its own qualifications, is for the good of the church, for the building up of the saints. And I want to show that to you this evening, that it is indeed a, a God-given office. We see that, I think, in verse 5, and I will seek to, to show that to you. And we see that it's an office that has certain qualifications. That is, a godly maturity. And that is uh, in verses 6 through verse 9, where all of those qualifications are laid out uh, in their details. So that's how we will examine this text. Under those two headings, that it is a God-given office, and it is an office which uh, requires godly maturity. Now, before we jump into the text itself, I want to do something a little bit different and make some application at the beginning of a sermon, which is kind of a strange concept, I think, but one which I think is probably very appropriate for this text particularly. Namely that this text actually applies to all of you. Children, this applies to you. Women, this applies to you. This text applies to everyone in the church because all scripture is given for all of God's people. These qualifications are, are not the qualifications for uh, super Christians 
or seminary students. These are the qualifications or, or the, the characteristics, the attributes really of a mature Christian. And so as we look at this, we see that this is really the kind of person that we should all seek to be in Christ. We should all seek to grow into this godly maturity. So even if you are, are not uh, a man who might be an elder, even if you're still very young, don't just uh, check out or say, well, this doesn't apply to me. This isn't for me. Pay attention and see what God says about godly, mature Christians so that we can ask the Lord to grow us into godly, mature Christians all together. With that being said, let us go ahead and look at the text before us and see what uh, treasures we can bring out of it for the good of God's people. We see in verse 5, that this office of elder is a God-given office. We read it in verse 5, this uh, saying from Paul, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul here is speaking with apostolic authority. He's given this letter to Titus, And it is to be read uh, to the church as a whole. It's not just for Titus personally, because Titus already knows who Paul is. Titus has been ministering with Paul. Titus knows this, but but this is the apostolic directive given to Titus that he is supposed to carry it out. And he's been left in Crete for this purpose. Now, we don't know when Paul went to Crete, uh, but Paul says that he left Titus in Crete. So we can assume that he was there at some point. And during Paul's ministry... Uh, we can also assume that since there is a church there, other people came to Christ. Now, we also know that there were Christians in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost, and they also heard the gospel. And so it's very likely that many Christians uh, in many different places at many different times had had heard that gospel and had had all started to to come together. They started to tell their friends and their family, hey, have you you heard this news about, about this Jesus fellow? He's the Christ. We heard all about it. And so they began to share the gospel with each other, and a Christian community began to develop in Crete, uh, but it is at this point in time uh, a little bit disorganized. It's been, it's been started, it's starting to build up, but, but there's still work which needs to be done to bring these saints to maturity. And so the ministry that God has given to Titus at this time was for Titus to build up the church in Crete, to organize things that needed organizing, to, to put in place uh, those things uh, which God called for that were lacking. And one of those things, indeed one of the chief things, Titus is to uh, put into place. One of the things that uh, remains to be put into order is this office of elders. Paul says, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, Literally, uh, Titus is supposed to uh, put those things which are lacking into order. Those things which which have been left undone, he, he needs to do. And this very first thing is to establish uh, an office amongst the Cretans, a foundational office. And we see then that this is a God-given office because it has been proclaimed to Titus as part of his God-given work. Titus has been left in Crete to do this work. 
This is uh, his directive from God. He's been ordained, as it were, to do this work in Crete. And he's been commanded by Paul, an apostolic command, to do this work. Paul is uh, speaking as an apostle of Christ, as a servant of Christ, bearing the authority, indeed, of Christ, uh, telling Titus, appoint elders in every town. And now you might be thinking, well, okay, so Titus is, to- is told excuse me, to appoint elders in the towns of Crete, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this is a God-given office for everybody throughout time, right? After all, this is just in Crete. Well, you know that there's a similar passage over in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and Timothy, who's ministering in Ephesus, is also told to establish this office or to, to find and appoint elders. And beyond that, uh, Peter And 1 Peter chapter 1 is writing to saints scattered all over the ancient world. He says uh, to Asia and and Cappadocia and and all these places. And Peter, and then in 1 Peter chapter 5, speaks to the elders. So we see that this office of elders established in all of the churches during the apostolic period by the order of God, because God had given the apostles to, to do this work which he had given them to do. Furthermore, in Ephesians chapter 4, we read that the office of a uh, shepherd teacher, a pastor, is one of the gifts which Christ gave to the church. So all of that information together tells us that this is a God-ordained office. Paul didn't invent it. Uh, The Presbyterians did not invent it. This is God-ordained. And it's really quite a necessary thing for the church. It's one of those things put in order the first thing which Titus is supposed to put in order. The office of elder, having uh, under-shepherds of Christ for the church, for for ministering to them and building them up, is is foundational to the church. It is, uh, in a a very real sense, uh, kind of like the kindling, which you might use to start a fire. You know, if you start a fire, if you just pile on a bunch of uh, very big logs and you try and light them with a match, not a whole lot is going to happen. In fact, if you've got really big logs, even pouring gasoline on it and lighting that on fire is not going to do a whole lot. They're not going to catch. But if you start with with kindling, with that small little fine material, which catches light very easily, that can begin to ignite uh, bigger sticks and that will ignite bigger sticks. And eventually you could put a huge log on there and it would all burn. Elders are somewhat the same like kindling to a fire, able to to point people to Christ and minister to them and and direct them to the Lord Jesus Christ for their spiritual benefit, for their growth in Christ. And so it's a foundational office and one given by Christ to the church for the church's good. And you notice here that Titus is told to appoint elders, plural. So we are not only to have uh, one elder in each church, one person who says, well, I'm the, the boss of the church and you all need to listen to me, but he's supposed to appoint a plurality of elders, multiple elders. In every town, he's told, everywhere that there is a congregation, there is a need for elders in the church. Now, I'm not certain if uh, every town in Crete had a church in it. Uh, I take this to mean, Paul is saying, every town where there is a church, uh, and the reason I'm not entirely certain that it there was a church in, in every town in Crete is because a Crete had a lot of towns in it. 
uh, if some of you students who uh, have uh, a classical education or some of you who have just read Homer's Odyssey, he talks about Crete. That's one of the earliest references to Crete. He says it is a, an island with 90 cities. So Crete is a very populous place. It's heavily populated. And there are Christians there in multiple cities because uh, Paul says in every town and there are supposed to be multiple elders in each of those cities. So Titus has quite a big job ahead of him, doesn't he? It can sometimes be hard for us to just find one good qualified man for elder, can't it? Titus now has been commanded to, to be on the search for many, many different people to appoint as elders. And this is a big task, a big task uh, because this is a God-given office, but it's a God-given office which has uh, some pretty stringent requirements. Maturity. We live in an age where maturity is maybe a, something of a thing of the past. People want to be forever young these days. Now, if you are, well, never mind, I won't say that. We seem to want to cling on to our, our youthfulness to the extent which we ignore any type of growth in wisdom or uh, uh, deep thinking. We want everything to be surface uh, and, and fun and exciting. And so uh, it can be difficult to find qualified men. It was difficult for Titus to find qualified men because Crete had its own set of problems. As we'll see next week in verse uh, 12, Cretans do not have a very good reputation uh, in the ancient world at all. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, it was said in the ancient days. So we have our own challenges today, but Titus had his challenges back in the ancient world, and that challenge really is that this office requires men who exhibit a godly maturity. And we see that in verses 6 through 9 here. Titus is directed to appoint elders, and here he's told what these men need to look like. Beginning in verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Titus is given a description of godly maturity which is spoken of broadly here in the beginning of verse 6 as being above reproach. Your translation or a translation that you may have grown up with might say blameless. An elder must be above reproach. An elder must be blameless. Now, does that mean that a person who exhibits godly maturity or a person who's qualified to be an elder has to be absolutely sinless? Well, no. No, of course not. We know that none of us are absolutely sinless. We know that uh, even the most godly and mature among us still have to repent of our, our sins uh, because we still fall daily in, in our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds. But what Paul means by this, that they are to be above reproach, 
or that they are uh, to be blameless is that there cannot be any uh, charges, any scandalous charges which would stick because they're true. In other words, a man qualified for the office of elder is someone who should really not have any skeletons in the closet. The Lord forgives all kinds of people because he is a forgiving God who loves to forgive sinners. But if a person is, well, has embezzled $100,000 or something, he's greedy for gain, which would disqualify him in another way, but uh, hangs on to that and never says anything about it and has just kind of kept that secret for his entire life, then he's not above reproach. He's done something which could bring a charge against him and a charge against the church as a whole. Uh, that is the kind of thing which Paul means when he talks about the elder being blameless or being above reproach, that they can't have these scandalous sins in their life uh, which could bring a charge against them and which could bring a charge against uh, Christ's church. So that's the broad view of, of what this man has to look like. One who, who in general, is exhibiting a godliness. But then Paul speaks of three different areas or spheres of a man's life, which he, he must demonstrate godliness in to be qualified. These are three different areas that we all can look at and say, do I exhibit these things in my own life or do I need to grow in them? And truth be told, all of us always will need to grow in all of these things. These are, are three different areas of maturity that we should seek to grow in in which an elder must have grown in enough to be qualified uh, for the office. What are these three things? Well, the first area that Paul speaks about is that he must exhibit a godly maturity in his home, in his family life. We see that here uh, in the kind of second half of verse six, that the elder, the one who is, is qualified must be the husband of one wife and his children, believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. An elder must be the husband of one wife. Now, this is one of the several reasons why we would say that the office of elder is only open to men, because only men can be the husband of one wife. But beyond that, what Paul is saying here is that elders must exhibit marital and sexual fidelity. Uh, you've probably also heard that this could be translated uh, a one-woman man or a man of one woman. The elder is one who uh, clings to his wife, who hasn't gotten married and then said, well, he's okay, but like I could also take that lady to be my wife or that one. He must be uh, faithful in his marriage. Now, in saying this, this kind of assumes that an elder is married, but I should like to point out that this doesn't mean that an unmarried man is uh, disqualified from eldership. Uh, what uh, does disqualify a man would be sexual immorality. And so a man who is uh, qualified to be an elder is one who, who is faithful to his one wife and does not demonstrate sexual immorality, things like polygamy or adultery, or in our day and age, as is very prevalent, uh, an addiction to pornography. If a man has unrepentant 
sins of this nature, he is not qualified to be an elder because he is not being uh, a one-woman man. This is the, the first and the primary area of the family in which the elder must exhibit a godliness in his relationship with his wife. But he must also exhibit this godliness and maturity uh, as pertains to his children. We read that if his children, uh, he's qualified if his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, I quibble slightly with uh, the the translation here of children being believers. This word can be translated believers, uh, certainly, but it could also be translated faithful. And since we are to uh, interpret more difficult passages of Scripture by clearer passages of Scripture, we could always go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, which lists qualifications for elders and see what that has to say about the family life of men. And I think that helps us to understand that it might be better to translate uh, this qualification as his children are, are faithful. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, it says that elders must manage his own household well, all dignity, keeping his, his children submissive. So this belief or, or faithfulness of children uh, is not necessarily, not necessarily excuse me, referring to uh, a faith in Christ, but whether or not they are being uh, led by their father or, or shepherded by their father or trained by their father and whether or not they have uh, a relationship with their father where they see him as the head of their household and, and they look to him as the one who will lead them and, and point them, Lord willing, to Christ. So an elder is to have children who are faithful and also children who are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So the children must have this uh, positive aspect but cannot have these negative aspects. Debauchery or insubordination, where debauchery is referred to uh, elsewhere in Scripture, uh, it usually has the sense of indulging in all manner of ungodly vice sexual immorality, uh, drunkenness, all forms of licentiousness. So uh, the children of an elder, those who are in his, his household, still remaining in his household, uh, must not be able to be charged with this. Their lives must exhibit that their father has, has sought to uh, grow them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So I was reading through various commentaries, I, I looked to see kind of what some in the ancient church said. And John Chrysostom, in speaking of this passage in, in one of his sermons on it, uh, essentially says, a man has demonstrated himself incompetent in the raising of children so that uh, they're acting in this way. That probably demonstrates to us that he doesn't have much business in seeking to shepherd and oversee the people of God in the church. And I think that's a point which ought to be uh, well taken. Children of elders should not be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination or rebellion against their parents. Now, I don't think what this is referring to is little toddlers who, when you say, Johnny, come here, they stick out their tongue and say no to you. But that is sin exhibited by those children, isn't it? And if a father just ignores that and laughs and says, oh, that's cute, and lets that develop, uh, it can grow 
and grow and grow. And if the father doesn't say, no, no, son, that, that sin, that doesn't honor God. That's something which we ought to repent of. And the Lord Jesus Christ promises us that if we repent of that sin, he, he'll forgive us of that sin and he'll cleanse us of that sin. And he'll give us new hearts so that we no longer uh, rebel and we no longer uh, fight with our brothers and sisters. Then that father has, has begun that raising his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, he's begun to show himself qualified for this office because his children are growing, growing in Christ. Well, that's the realm of the family. He must exhibit godly maturity in his family. He must also exhibit godly maturity in his character. And here in verses 7 and 8, Paul lists five negative qualities. And then in verse 8, he lists six noble qualities, I would call them. Technically speaking, verse 9 is the seventh quality, but we'll... we'll consider that uh, in another uh, category. But here are five negative qualities and, and six noble qualities. An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, or greedy for gain. An elder, as the steward of God's house must not exhibit these various qualities. Now the word here that we have translated steward is speaking of of a house manager. Someone who oversees all of the other uh, servants in in a powerful man's household. Someone who says, okay, the master said we need to do this, so let's go do this and let's go do that. This, I think, is is an excellent uh, description of how an elder is to be. He's, he's an overseer or, or a bishop that kind of speaks to his duties, and he's a steward. See, we are not the masters of the church. We're not the masters of the household. It's Christ who is king of the church. Elders are simply his under shepherds. And so they don't ever say, you have to do this because I'm your elder. They say, here's what Jesus says in his word. Here's, here's how God has spoken. Here's how we can apply that to our lives. And I think this is important. And they're supposed to demonstrate this in both word and in action. Because they are not supposed to be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkards, violent, or greedy. How can a man who exhibits uh, these qualities be a good steward of God's people? An arrogant man always is focused on himself. He always wants his own way. When people uh, come to him and they say, well, I, you know, I think maybe I disagree with your interpretation of that verse. The arrogant man would say, well, what do you know? I studied Greek. The arrogant man doesn't accept uh, critique or rebuke. The arrogant man only wants his own way. Uh, it's focused on himself. And, and so an elder must not be that way. He must not be quick-tempered. He can't easily get mad at the people of God. He has to be patient with them, kind to them, not seeing every little thing as something which sets him off and causes him to to lose his temper at God's people. He must not be a, a drunkard. He must not be violent. Older translations uh, it's, I think, somewhat uh, a better translation or also amusing. He must not be a, a striker. Someone who uh, is quick to come to blows over things. You remember throughout history, it's commonly been uh, 
perceived as, as a fine thing to engage in things like duels. Where somebody uh, besmirches your honor, you chuck a glove at them, and you say, let's fight to the death. A violent man is one who, when he is uh, corrected, or somebody says, no, we, we don't think that's right, when another elder says, we disagree with what you're saying here, and they vote against it, the violent man uh, picks up his boxing gloves and starts to put them on and says, well, let's settle this uh, by might. Is that an appropriate way for an elder to act? No, of course not. He must not be violent. He must not be greedy for gain. Elders of the church are the ones who, who in many respects, kind of have the final say when it, when it comes to certain financial matters. The deacons do all of the heavy lifting for the elders, and they say, great job, deacons. That's all going over my head. But an elder can be very easily tempted by money. An elder might be tempted to shirk from preaching the truth because, well, that's where the paycheck comes from when you're a teaching elder. You might say, well, it's, it's a lot easier for me to just say, just be nice. God wants us to be nice to people. That is the whole sum of Scripture. Well, God does want us to be kind and gentle to one another. But, but if we minimize what God says about things like sin, if we minimize what God says about things like holiness, because we're afraid of not uh, being paid or we're afraid of, of financial consequences or the like, uh, then we're not quali- qualified Excuse me, to be elders. Now, elders must not be greedy for gain. They must not use the office as a means of attaining financial benefit because that is the first step or one of the first steps of perverting God's word. This is one of the great issues in the medieval church. One of the great issues that the Reformation sought to, to counter is priests were entering the priesthood simply so they could get a nice paycheck. Not to minister to God's people, not to, to build them up in Christ, not to point them to Jesus, but because they were greedy for gain. And these qualities should be nowhere present in an elder. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, sometimes elders aren't uh, prideful. It doesn't mean sometimes they don't lose their temper. But these things should not be uh, the, the constant tenor of a man's life. They shouldn't be the, the picture of his life. They should be sins which are quickly put to death by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit. So those are the five negative qualities, but there's six noble qualities which are contrasted with that. First, an elder is to be hospitable. And this this contrasts directly with greedy for gain, doesn't it? In the ancient world, inns were really nasty, terrible, vile places uh, with all sorts of sin. Uh, And so elders were to be hospitable to people, not just inviting them over uh, for Sunday lunch every now and then, although that is a good way to practice hospitality in this day and age, but, but opening their homes to people, opening their people in the congregation, giving them places to stay, opening their homes to visiting Christians who were traveling through the city. Elders were to be godly in in thought, word, and deed in ministering to people, even in the opening up of their homes and and giving of themselves uh, and their their possessions and their food. Elders are to be lovers of good, which is fairly self-explanatory, but delighting 
in virtue, in righteousness, and the growth and godliness of their people. Elders are to be self-controlled, which I think might be better translated here as as prudent uh, or wise. This really kind of has the sense of uh, being uh, controlled in, in speech and thought. Elders are to be those kinds of people who every time they hear a matter, they don't go around and begin blabbing to everyone in the church. They are prudent. They, they don't go around saying everything they've heard about everybody. They uh, search out a matter and they say, oh, does, this have any, does this have any bearing? And they go to that person and they speak to them one-on-one. Not just, well, did you hear what so-and-so did the other day? I can't believe them. That would not be a godly decision or action, would it? And so the elder must not do that. He must be self-controlled. And an elder must be upright, holy, and disciplined, loving goodness and justice, loving God's law, uh, being uh, devout and seeking to do all of God's will, uh, being disciplined, not lazy, not frittering away their time, but, but seeking to put all things in order to God's glory for the good of God's people. Uh, elder must be upright in his character and he must be upright in his doctrine, godly in his doctrine. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. An elder must have knowledge of the word of God, the trustworthy word, the faithful word. He must hold fast to the gospel, the pure gospel, the true gospel, not adding to it, not taking away from it, but holding it forth to the people of God and saying, this is the good news in Jesus Christ. Are you a sinner? Of course you are. Here's great news. Jesus Christ saves sinners. Are you a sinner? Do you stand guilty before God? Are you deserving of his wrath and curse? Yes, you are. Here's the great news. God loved the world and gave his son so that whoever believes him in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The elder must hold firm to this word. He must be uh, well steeped in biblical doctrine, knowing the scriptures well, holding fast to it, clinging to it as it were, and why? So that he may be able to teach the word. He's to hold fast to the trustworthy word that he might be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. An elder must know God's word and be able to apply God's word. He must be able to to speak God's word to God's people and and direct them to Christ in the word, to instruct them in sound doctrine, to, to teach them what man is to believe about God and what duty God requires of man. As the shorter catechism Uh, uh, summarizes scripture. He must be able to teach, to build God's people up by God's word. Not by using the wisdom of man. Not by saying, well, here's what pop psychology teaches us. But saying, here's what God's word teaches us. Here's who God is. Here's what God has done. Look to Christ for your salvation. He must be able to teach the word to God's people. He must also be able to teach the word to those who contradict it. He must be able to rebuke them. When people uh, come up against the church and they say, well, you know, Jesus was a good man. He was a prophet maybe, but he wasn't God. The elder must be able to say, no, you're wrong. Christ is fully God and fully man. Christ Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. 
John 1 tells us about that. 1 John tells us about that. The elder must be able to rebuke those who, who spew false doctrine, who contradict the word of God. He, he must be able to, to point them to the truth in the hope, in the blessed hope that the spirit of God will use even that rebuke and the truth to change that person's heart and bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. So an elder must exhibit godly maturity in his family and in his character and in his doctrine. And as I said earlier, this is really a picture of godly maturity, isn't it? All of God's people should be godly in their family relationships. They should be godly in their character. They, they should be godly in their doctrine. They should come to a maturity in all of these things. Because we all want to be good and faithful servants of King Jesus, don't we? We all want to be more like him. And being a godly mature people in these areas is being more like Jesus. So I say this is a, a picture of godly maturity. It's a picture of godly maturity because, in effect, this is a picture of Jesus, isn't it? Because he is the only one who perfectly and always exhibits all of these things, doesn't he? An elder should be the husband of one wife. Christ is the one who loves his bride, the church, who will never leave her or forsake her, who loves his wife, who teaches us his people by his word, bringing us up so that we are no longer practicing debauchery or, or immorality and we're no longer rebelling against him. Christ is the one who, who exhibits all of these characteristics. Christ isn't arrogant. We saw that in Philippians 2. He's the one who humbled himself so much that though he is God, he did not count it uh, uh, something to grasp at. But he humbled himself and took on human nature, human flesh, and, and lived among us. Christ was not arrogant. He didn't exhibit any of these uh, negative qualities, but he did exhibit all of these noble qualities. Christ is the one who welcomes us in to his house. He is the most hospitable. Christ is the one who loves good the most. He is the most self-controlled, the most upright, the most holy, the most disciplined. And Christ is the one who has given us his word and who knows his word perfectly, who teaches us his word, who gives instruction to his people and who rebukes those who come against his people. Christ is the one who exhibits all of these things. And so, to grow in this is to grow in Christ-likeness. And that is what we all desire or what we all should desire. We should desire to be more like Christ, growing in a godly maturity. This is something that all Christians ought to seek and ought to uh, aspire to. But this is something which, which elders must exhibit to be qualified as elders. We've gone a little long, so I'll close here. Uh, with just a few points of application uh, conveniently alliterated for you all with P's. How can, we, how can we apply this? First of all, pray. Pray for your elders that you have. Pray for them in all of these char uh, characteristics, qualities, in all of these areas. Pray for your elders in their marriages. Pray for your elders as they seek to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Pray that your elders would uh, be able to put to death uh, their sins and, and not exhibit any of these negative qualities, not have any of these in their lives, but that they would grow in all of the noble qualities. Pray that your elders would, would delight to study God's word and would have time to study God's word and would, would grow in their knowledge of God's word. Pray for yourselves. 
Pray for yourselves that you would grow in all of these. Pray for your marriages and your children. Pray that you would grow in all of these characteristics. Pray that you would grow in your knowledge of God's word. Pray as well for future elders, brothers and sisters. The the Lord's church uh, constantly needs uh, elders, constantly needs under shepherds of Christ to help do the work of building up the church. Pray for these men. Pray that God would even now begin to grow them in these areas so that they would be qualified when the time comes. So that's the first, pray. The second, uh, be perceptive, perceive. Be on the lookout for men who meet these qualifications. I'll just kind of put a plug in here. Our session right now is wonderful and I love these men so much and I'm so thankful to God for them. I would be very thankful if God gave us more elders because that gives us all the ability to minister even more effectively with one another to God's people. Elders are a great gift of Christ. Pray that the Lord would bring more elders and then be on the lookout for those men. Be on the lookout for those men. Third, prepare men. This is for you especially. Uh, Men of age to be elders and also young men. Even boys, listen up. If you meet the qualifications, older men, perhaps prepare to uh, be nominated for this office, perhaps prepare to be in this office. If you're nominated, now elders are supposed to uh, not be compelled to the work, but are to do so voluntarily. But if you're nominated, perhaps consider whether or not this is the Lord giving you a nudge, saying to you, maybe I want you to be an officer in my church. Prepare yourself for that, maybe. But prepare by seeking to to grow in all of these areas and and humble reliance upon the Spirit. And, And young boys, one day it is possible, if not likely, that the Lord might call you to be officers in his church, to be elders, Prepare, seek to honor the Lord now, even in your youth. Seek to devote your life to Christ even now in your youth and and prepare and then forth produce in full reliance upon the Holy Spirit, in humble reliance. Seek to grow in godliness in all of these areas of your life, in, in your marriage, in your character, in your knowledge of God's word. Seek to grow by the Holy Spirit into a mature, godly Christian. Let's pray. God and our Father, we we see that there are a great many things in this text. Uh, It is uh, at the same time so simple and yet so complex. Lord, we thank you that you've given this office to your church. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to provide officers to your church. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you have such high standards. We know that we do not really ever fully meet them. Lord, continue to work in us all to grow into maturity, to grow uh, more in Christ's likeness, to be more like Jesus. We thank you that we have a shepherd who is perfect in every respect, that the king of the church, the, the true leader of the church is absolutely perfect. Lord, help us to follow him. Conform us more to his image. We ask that you might be glorified and honored. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's take a few moments now to meditate.